Better remain silent. Better not even think if you are not prepared to act. Annie Besant. Violin Vice contains graphic and explicit content which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Violin Vice. My name is Audie. And I'm John John. If you guys could do us a huge favor and hit that subscribe button, leave a review, and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. We even have a contest going on for free Violin Vice merch if you do all of the above, and we'll announce the winner right here at the end of August. Please hit that subscribe button and leave a review. Also, the sweatshirt's really comfy. Yes, John John has the first mark of it. So I, I was so happy. Yeah. So now we're going to start off with today's topic. So please welcome our very special guest, who is a cardiovascular sonographer at UW Health, Rachel Brooke. Hi, everybody. Hello. So, Rachel, do you want to give us a little bit on your background? Like, where did you go to school? What made you go into sonography? And then tell us a little bit about sonography in A Day in the Life. Sure. So I guess first how I got into sonography. Um, originally I wanted to do ultrasound of babies, like pregnant women. So that's how I started. And then when I went into the ultrasound school, they asked if I would do a cardiac instead. So ultrasound of the heart. And at that point I was like, sure, I guess I'll kind of do anything. I'm trying to get through school. And so I started my ultrasound doing cardiac and fell in love with it. So I was like, this is good for me. Like, I don't need to do babies. That's not my thing. I ended up really liking the cardiac side. School-wise, my bachelor's degree is from the University of Wisconsin um, at Milwaukee, and that's in biomedical science. And then my sonography degree is from... Um, UW Hospital and Clinic Diagnostic Medical Sonography School. So there I did two years specializing in ultrasound in the cardiovascular side. So I only do hearts, veins, and arteries. I don't do any pregnant women, any abdomen stuff. So it's a little bit different. A lot of people think it's only for babies, but I won't even know what I'm looking at <laughs> if, I'm, if somebody asks me to do that. A day in the life of a sonographer. Well, for me, I work in the Department of Vascular Surgery, so I get to work and then every hour I have a new patient and uh, those exams can be anywhere where I look at people's necks looking at the blood flow, their legs, their arms, some vascular in the abdomen like their kidneys, their stomach, arteries, and we're just checking to see how well the blood flow is and some people maybe need stents or bypasses or they can go in and kind of clean out the arteries to help the blood flow. We also look for blood clots so somebody might need to be put on a blood thinner if they're having blood clots. There's a lot of different things but it's kind of a side that a lot of people don't think of when they think of ultrasound they just kind of think of babies but like I said I wouldn't even know <laughs> where to start like with that kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, babies is all I thought ultrasound was for, <laughs> so that that's kind of a 
different viewpoint that I was expecting. So that's pretty awesome. Sure, yeah. I mean, and I guess like we scan the brain too, and that's that can be a little difficult. You do but brain scans? Yeah, at the hospital. Oh. We do that at the hospital, not so much like outpatient, which is mostly what I do. But um, yeah. I'd imagine it would be hard to do that outpatient. Yes, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's like I said, it's kind of a different side that unless you've needed those tests done before, you don't really know that they exist. <laughs> Do you still use like the same gel to get the scans and everything? Yep, same gel. It's the same ultrasound machine. It's just a different transducer like size. Um, but yeah, using gel, it's the same exact technology. It's just um, looking at something different. <laughs> nice. While researching, I just came across a few terms, and I was wondering, like, if they are applicable to you, and what they kind of mean, and a little bit more about them. So, the first one is RDMS, the Registered Diagnostic Medical Sonographer. Yeah. So, RDMS is, like, a general sonographer. So, those are the people that usually are doing the baby ultrasounds, kidneys, livers, uh, pancreas gallbladders, that kind of stuff, thyroids. Um, so yeah, registered diagnostic medical sonographer, it's kind of broad. So in when you go into that, there's different board exams that we sit for. So those people can do like an abdomen, registry, OB gynecology, breast, pediatrics, and like muscles and stuff like that. So it's a little bit different. So I am not RDMS. I'm RDCS. Which is a registered diagnostic cardiac sonographer. Right. So that's specifically cardiac, which is the heart. And then for those registries, you can sit for an adult board and a pediatric board. So I sat for both, and so I can do both adults and kids. Um, so they're separate. Nice. Yep. And then the RVT is a registered vascular technician? Yes. So I also am an RVT, so that's the veins and the arteries. So the school that I went to, you either have to do the RDMS or RDCS, and everybody does RVT. Okay. So they're all separate, but at the school I went to, you do both. Some people only have one. There are people that don't have any that do ultrasound. It's kind of an older thing, like some older people don't do it, or some places don't require you to be um registered but it's you know pretty common now that to be hired as a sonographer you should be registered in something and sit for a board and kind of just proves that you know what you're doing <laughs> gotcha and then when you get the scans do you diagnose them technically no <laughs> okay. we can't do that that has to be a doctor but many places the sonographer writes like a preliminary report so we have to kind of present like this is what we found like we took we were you know we were there and we did the scan and we take representative pictures but we don't take a picture of that whole hour that we're scanning somebody we're taking you know like maybe 15 pictures maybe 80 pictures and it's you know what's important kind of and then a lot of times we just tell the doctor you know like we found this and these are the numbers that we got or whatever and it has to be their name on a report saying yes this is what it is gotcha 
that's just legal stuff though. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no. Okay. So another question is like, without saying names of patients, can you tell us the most interesting patient and kind of case that you've worked on? Yeah. We say yes. (laughs) (laughs) We see a lot of different things and I've only been working like as, you know, as a sonographer for a year now, I've only been out of school for a year. So I've seen like some cool stuff, not as much as like a seasoned person, but I think what's interesting, especially in the vascular world, because that's where I work the most, is just the biggest thing is, is the blood flowing where it needs to? And if it's not, how can we get it to, you know, do the best? And so sometimes that means attaching an artery to another artery so that blood can go around where the issue is. So something I think is cool is sometimes we, not we, the surgeons, (laughs) attach like an artery in somebody's arm to one in their leg. So that starts like around their collarbone and then it goes down their chest, down their abdomen, meets an artery in like the groin area. So it bypasses like your abdomen arteries to get flow to your leg if there's like an issue somewhere in between. So I don't know, I think it's just kind of cool that, you know, things that people don't know we do and especially if you don't know somebody with it or know that it's even a thing. It's just like our surgeons attach things that sometimes I'm looking like, what were they doing in here? <laughs> like attaching this to that. And it's, it can be interesting. And it's just, like I said, just to get the blood flow where it needs to go in now, the easiest is, way possible. <laughs> gotcha. Is, is that like they make a new kind of artery or do they like fully remove one from like the arm to bypass everything? Nope. So they'd keep all the arteries in the arm because you still want the blood going, you know, to your arm and to your hand. So it's just, it's an artificial artery, I guess it might be the best way to say it to like people who don't know all the terms, but it's a graft. So it's just, oh. um, like a synthetic material that they attach to one artery and then one end to one artery and the other end to another artery and blood flow goes like in the path of least resistance so if that's that's that'll be the easiest way for it to go so it'll just go through that to artificial bad area right yeah yeah Yeah. And then the last question I have is, do you cross fields with radiologists at all? In what I do, I don't. We, for the vascular side, we work with vascular surgeons. And then the cardiac side, we work with cardiologists. But if you're a general sonographer, which is, you know, the other half of sonography, kind of, um, they work with radiologists, and that's who reads their studies. So, um general ultrasound works with the radiologists and um but not not usually vascular or cardiac people gotcha 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 Mm -hmm. john jen do you have any more questions at all no the big one was how they would connect things (laughs) that weren't there or connected so it kind of sounds frankensteinian type (laughs) things so that was a little concerning um, yeah, so, um, when somebody has, like, an issue in an artery, there's a lot of different things they can do. Like I said, sometimes they can just go in and kind of clean out the artery. It's plaque, usually, that's in there, and 
if they can't do that, they can do a stent or a bypass. It just like kind of depends on like the grade and what's best for the patient. And some things are more invasive than others. And do like the synthetic ones show up easier in that ultrasound or is it close enough to like what human tissue is where it blends in almost the same? Um, there's different kinds of material. So like there's like the synthetic ones, those are usually pretty easy to see and they're usually closer to like the skin surface than um, like a normal artery would be. But okay. then sometimes they'll use a vein as an artery. So like they'll take out somebody's own vein and then attach that to an artery so that the blood can go through that. So that looks a little more normal. And then there's also like cadaver. So using, you know, a cadaver vein or organ donors. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a lot of different, different things they can do. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's gotta be so weird. Yeah. It's, it can be interesting for sure. And yeah, not like nobody's the same that has vascular surgery. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, that, that's all the weird stuff I wanted to ask. <laughs> so now we're going to get on today's case. His name is Paul Bateson. Have you heard of him before, John John? No. Okay. I, I might have in passing, but nothing's ringing any bells. Alright, so he's a very interesting fellow. So, Bateson was born on August 24th, 1940, and grew up in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. He was the son of a metallurgist, so like a guy that works with welding, smelting, and metal alloys, like mixing them, see how what they do, basically just metal properties. A modern day blacksmith. Pretty much. Okay. He would later suggest that his appearance on The Exorcist was revenge on his father for punishing him as a child by making him stay at home from Saturday matinees at the local movie theater and listen to opera on the radio instead. He served in the army in the early 1960s where he began drinking heavily out of boredom while stationed in Germany. He began a lifelong struggle with alcoholism during this period. After his discharge, he returned to Lansdale and stopped drinking for a short time. In 1964, he moved to New York City where he began a relationship with a man he would later describe himself as not exclusively gay, who said he was involved in music. This relationship was marked by heavy drinking, either in the form of cocktails at the pier and frequent parties at the couple's home, as well as weekends in the Fire Island enclave of Cherry Grove, both with food and drink cooked by Bateson. Five years later, Bateson's mother died of a stroke and his younger brother committed suicide. Bateson trained as a neurological radiological technician and began working in that capacity. After his relationship ended in 1973, he moved to Brooklyn neighborhood of Borough Park. He commuted from there to his job in New York University Medical Center, NYUMC, where he was well-liked and respected by his colleagues. In the late 1972, film director William Friedrichen visited NYUMC while he was preparing to make The Exorcist, the film adaptation of William Peter Blatty's novel of that name. He wanted to view some medical procedures since he was considering showing some in the film. 
He was also looking at staff who might be willing to play extras in the film, since he would be shooting in the interiors of New York. Although the film itself was set in Washington, D.C., Dr. Barton Lane invited the director to watch a cerebral angiography. At that time, such angiographies were performed by puncturing the patient's carotid artery. At the time, such angiographies were performed by puncturing the patient's carotid artery in the front of the neck in order to insert the catheter through which a or con- contrast agent was injected in order to make the patient's blood vessels boost more visible under x-rays. In the moment between the arterial puncture and the insertion of the catheter, blood freely issued from the tube mouth in a rhythm with the patient's heartbeat. Frederican was sufficiently impressed that he told Lane immediately afterwards that not only did he want him to depict the procedure in his film, but he wanted Lane to be the one performing it on camera, along with the nurse and Bateson, the technician who recalled Lane in 2018, was the best he ever had. A few months later, Frederican and his crew returned to shoot the scene, blocking off part of the hospital's radiology department for two successive weekends. It was one of the first scenes shot during the principal photography in which the character of Regan, Linda Blair, is examined medically to see if any of the strange behavior later found to be the result of demonic possession she has been exhibiting can be scientifically explained. Lane later recalled hearing that the crew was still trying to figure out how to make Reagan's head spin for the scene later on in the film, like the angiogram became the, one of the film's best remembered moments. So I'm wondering, did they actually puncture the actress's carotid artery during this? Because like that... nowadays, obviously that would never happen. Like you wouldn't actually perform that on something for a movie, but it like sounds like they actually did that. They did the actual procedure, but I'm pretty sure it was on a patient that they made to look like the actress. So like a body double? Yeah, basically like a body double. Well, I hope the person actually needed that. That's (laughs) what I read, but again, it's... Wikipedia wasn't the most reliable source for that. But that is also what was collaborated among a few different websites. Hmm. Hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. Commitment to the movie. (laughs) Yup. In that scene, it is Bateson who speaks most of the dialogue, demonstrating the calming bedside manner, another attribute that drew praise from those he worked alongside, that he had used with many actual child patients. He can be seen in the background early as Reagan is wheeled into the room, helping put her on the table and attaching wires to her shoulders. As the film shows Reagan's face in a tight close-up, alternating with takes of the procedure being finished, including her blood spurting into the air and staining her surgical gown, as it had in the procedure Frederican watched. Bateson's voice is heard off camera instructing her, warning her that the cardioid puncture will hurt and reassuring her that as she winces immediately afterward. Upon the exorcist release at the end of 1973, the scene became notorious as the one that the audience found most disturbing. Despite its lack of any of the supernatural content that underlies the rest of the film's horror elements, medical professionals, including Lane and others involved in that scene, have also been praised as a realistic depiction of the procedure of special historic interest since it is no longer performed with the carteroid puncture and one of the most realistic 
depictions of any medical procedure in a popular film. Around the time The Exorcist was released, Bateson's drinking again increased, adversely affecting his social life. Nobody likes the drunk, he later told The Village Voice. In 1975, it affected his job performance, and NYUMC let him go. Bateson sustained himself with odd jobs, such as doing light repair work and cleaning apartments near where he now lived in Greenwich Village, and taking tickets at the theater showing pornographic films. He also went to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and was successful for a while in staying sober. He socialized with other recovering alcoholic gay men and was hoping to start another long-term relationship. However, by 1977, Bateson had begun drinking again more heavily. He said later that he was drinking at least a quarter of vodka a day, which is 0.95 liters, which made him passive and curtailed his social life again. After a few shots, I'd shave and get dressed, intending to go out. But then after the vodka, I had no energy left to move. On those nights when he was able to go out, Bateson patronized leather bars, something he had started doing back in 1970 with a group that styled themselves as bikers. Leather impresses me, he said later, contrasting it with drag and swish. On September 14, 1977, Addison Verrill, a reporter who covered the film industry for Variety, was found dead in his Horatio Street apartment. He had been beaten and stabbed, and there were some signs of a struggle. However, nothing of value had been taken. Police believe that the killer's motive had been robbery. He might have been looking for cash or jewelry, since those could be taken quickly. There was no evidence, however, of forced entry. Beryl had likely knew his killer and let him into the apartment. There were several empty beer cans and half-full liquor glasses at the scene. Gay activist and journalist Arthur Bell, a friend of Verrill's, wrote an article about the case in the Village Voice, setting it against the larger issue of how murders of gay men, several of which occurred yearly in the village, were rarely taken seriously by police or reported on in the media, since they were seen as results of sexual encounters gone wrong. The police, Bell wrote, had learned that Verrill had been at the mine shaft, a popular leather bar until 6 a.m. talking to many other patrons. But that is kind of how it goes, especially back then. Like, it, mm-hmm. and even now, so the LBGQ plus community does not get taken very seriously when stuff goes wrong, and this is just another one of those cases. I'm more impressed that they were there till 6 a.m. <laughs> Yeah, That's, it's a little, a little late. That's be out. <laughs> Anywho, according to Bell, Verrill's friends said that while he did not seek the kink that was abundant at the mine shaft, he nevertheless liked the tributes of many of whom were customers. He was considered a regular, holding a court at a corner table, not only at the mine shaft but the Anvil, another popular leather bar, and other popular gay bars of the area. His presence was seen as making those bars popular. Bell ended his article by giving the phone number of the New York Police Department's Homicide Bureau and asking anyone with that information to call them. However, eight days after the killing, someone called him claiming to be the killer, apparently to correct Bell's assumption that the killer was a psychopath who targeted gays. I like your story and I like your writing, the caller told him, but I'm not a psychopath. In the story that ran on the voice's front page, the caller re- 
counted the events of the night that ended in Viril's murder. I'm a gay and I needed money and I'm an alcoholic, he said. After three months of sobriety, he claimed that he had gone out to Badlands, a Christopher Street bar, in the early hours of September 14th, where Viril, whom he did not know, offered to buy him a beer, a proposition that the caller accepted. The beer became several, and with the two consuming poppers and cocaine in addition to the drinks. At 3 a.m., they left Badlands and went to the mine shaft, where they continued their alcohol and drug consumption. The caller told Bell he was impressed by how popular his companion was. I didn't realize he was such a superstar, and I wanted to go home with him. After two hours, they took a taxi to Viril's apartment, something the caller said Viril was reluctant to do because he had to get up early and work on the story. There, the two had more alcohol and cocaine, followed by sex at 7.30 a.m. The caller said afterwards he realized that was as far as Viril had wanted the relationship to go. I needed money and I hated rejection, so still intoxicated, I decided to do something I'd never done before. After incapacitating Viril with a frying pan from his kitchen, the caller recounted that he stabbed the journalist with a knife, although he said he chose the wrong part of his chest. I wonder what that means. I don't think it was the heart and that he left him living because that's what it made it sound like. Oh, yikes. Well, I mean, the chest is pretty crucial for most of your vital organs, so I'm sure he hit something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But... (laughs) I don't know. Most people know where the heart is these days. And he was a medical professional, so... Right! Hopefully yeah. he would know something, but... He, he took it... Well, he was on cocaine and drunk. That's true. Mm, <laughs> could be more difficult. Yeah. I don't know. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> so, after the killing, the caller said he took cash totaling $57... About $240 in modern currency and Viril's master charge card, passport, and some clothes. He used the money to buy liquor and was consistently drunk for the entire next day. Bell confirmed with another source that the man had been seen at Popular Bathhouse that night. The caller offered some information about himself besides that relevant to understanding the crime. He claimed to be sort of an orchestra leader to have a wife in Berlin who did not understand his homosexuality and a teenage son. He had an interest in the arts and he had wanted to be a dancer when he was younger. Bell noted that he talked about wanting to atone for the crime several times, which he connected to the conversation taking place at Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement. But I don't want to give myself up. I wouldn't be able to practice again. I'd lose my license. He declined to tell Bell what sort of practice the license was for, suggesting that that would help identify him. I feel like he gave a lot of information that he didn't have to give about himself. I agree. Kind of gave himself away here. I mean, I guess we didn't really know, like, if he had a wife or son. But if anybody would have seen them together, you can kind of put the pieces together here of, like, narrowing down who it could be. And he hadn't been in Germany for, like, a while. So... How, 
I, I'm not connecting those dots very well. Maybe that was part of his cocaine-fueled fantasy. I think he was just a talker, and he wanted to kind of throw a red herring in there, but he did feel some sort of guilt about the crime because he wasn't able to keep quiet. He talked to a reporter, and he was trying to give himself up without giving himself up. Right. That's yeah. what it's kind of sounding like. And was he Jewish? Because that was... The Jewish holiday so I mean I, I don't know like usually I wouldn't really coincide a lot of like holidays with talking to the press about my biggest mistake <laughs> so I'm not quite sure what his religious denomination was but that could also just be a red herring, herring again to throw them off his trail and still let him to be able to talk about the crime too oh if he was having a wife in germany that's a big step i think he was and not make... married that part is the lie oh <laughs> yeah well i'm confused so he did his job right i think <laughs> when bell contacted the police about the call they told them that it seemed like the first solid lead in the case the caller had known about the stolen credit card, a detail the police had not made public, and described a white substance found on the floor of Farrell's apartments as Crisco, a shortening frequently used at the time by gay men for sexual lubricant. Police had not thus far been able to identify it and also made, had not made that information public. Detectives suspected the caller would call Bell again and went to his apartment to wait with him. At 11 p.m., his phone rang, and it was not the original caller, but a man who identified himself as Mitch. He told Bell the killer was Paul Bateson, whom he had gotten to know while the two were drawing out at St. Vincent's Hospital a few months earlier. While he believed Bateson was not the man's real name, since he knew the man to have used the pseudonym Johnny Johnson at one point, he said Bateson was an unemployed x-ray technician that had called him earlier and confessed to the crime. Mitch asked to meet Bell in person, but the police told Bell not to do so. Instead, they just arrested Bateson at his East 12th Street apartment where he was lying around drunk. When he was asked if he knew why he was being arrested, he pointed to the open copy of The Voice with Bell's article indicating that it, that was probably why. A detective went to the bar and brought Mitch in for questioning as well. He was released after a few hours. Basin eventually gave the police a handwritten confession that was consistent with what he had told Bell. Bateson was charged with second-degree murder and detained while awaiting trial. Bell interviewed Bateson in person and a month later visiting him in Rikers Island. Bateson talked generally about his life, something he said he did often, also corroborated by other acquaintances of Bateson that Bell interviewed. Jail, he said, was helping him to again get sober, and one of his biggest regrets about being in custody was missing the new season of the Joffrey Ballet. Bell admitted that he too might have taken Bateson up on an offer to go to his apartment if he had met him at a bar rather than in jail. While Bateson avoided talking about the crime he was charged with, what Bell supposed to be advice from his attorney. He did talk about the trial. He had pleaded not guilty and expected that to be the verdict after the long trial. A lot of people will be hurt, patients, friends. Then I'll tear up my roots and settle somewhere else. At the time of Bateson's arrest, police had also been investigating a series of murders of gay men over the previous two years, 
which they believed were committed by the same person due to similarities in the killing's modus operandi. Six corpses of men have been found dismembered in bags floating in the Hudson River. None of them had ever been identified, but police traced the clothes on them to shops in Greenwich Village that catered to the gay community. Since the bags reportedly had wording on them that connected them to NYUMC's neuropsychiatric unit, and the dismemberment of bodies appeared to have been done by someone skilled in using a knife, investigators began to suggest publicly that Bateson might be a suspect in, as they were referred to officially, the CUPPI killings, for circumstances unknown pending police investigation as well. Those killings were subject to another interview Bateson gave, although it would not be made public until 2012. Fred who recalled him from both the initial visit to NYUMC and the filming of The Exorcist, A Nice Young Man, read a long story about the case in Daily News. Surprised that the gentle baseman he recalled could have even been accused of such a murder, Frederican came to Rikers to talk to him after getting permission from Bateson's lawyer. In an interview with Movies The Notebook that coincided with the release of the film Killer Joe, Frederican said Bateson admitted to killing Verrill, although the director then incorrectly stated that Bateson had dismembered the body, thrown the bag and body parts into the river. Bateson said that the prosecutors were offering him a deal whereby if he confessed to the bag murders and some of the other unsolved killings, he would receive a shortened sentence. He told Frederican he was not sure if he would accept it. In 2018, the Hollywood Reporter It Happened in Hollywood podcast Fred Weekend attributed Bateson's confession to the unsolved murders. As a result of this conversation with Bateson, Fred Weekend decided it was time to make the film adaptation of New York Times reporter Gerald Walker's 1970 novel, Kurt Cruising, about a police officer going undercover in a gay community to catch a serial killer. Life had already imitated art with an NY. PD officer Randy Jurgensen going undercover in gay bars since he was a similar in appearance to the victims of the bag killer. Intrigued by the leather subculture Bateson had told him about, Frederican knew Matthew Eliano, the mafioso who owned Minecraft and the other Manhattan gay bars of the era and was able to visit the bar himself. He later added scenes set there to his film. Released in 1980 to mixed reviews after heavy protests by the city's gay community during the production. In pretrial motions, Bateson, through his attorney, attempted to have his confession suppressed. He argued that he'd been drunk at the time and that police had not yet read him his rights. Bateson also denied having made the phone call to Bell, claiming that his purported confession was just based on what he read about in the case in The Voice. Bateson went on trial in early 1979. The state entered both his confession and the Bell's Voice article into evidence against him. Contrary to his prediction of the long-term trial in the wake of his arrest, Bateson was convicted after four days on March 5th of 1979. At Bateson's sentencing a month later, the prosecutor William Hoyt called him a psychopath and reiterated his belief that he was responsible for also the six unsolved murders. 
While Hoyt admitted that there's no direct proof of this, he said that Bateson had confessed to those crimes in a conversation with Richard Ryan, a friend who had testified for the state at trial that Bateson had confessed to the Vero murder to him. Speaking for himself, Bateson denied any role in any of the other murders. Justice Morse Goldman sentenced Bateson to 20 years to life in prison, five years less than the minimum Hoyt had asked for. He ultimately found the connection to the other murders too inferior to merit any consideration in sentencing Bateson. In a 2018 Esquire article about Bateson, writer Matt Miller was unable to find what that evidence might have been, as the New York County Clerk's Office could not find a copy of the trial transcript. But nothing Miller had been able to review mentioned either the bags reportedly being traced to NYUMC or any mention of the deal offered to Bateson if he confessed to the other murders. Bateson ultimately served 24 years and three months of his sentence, becoming eligible for parole in 1997. On the day after his 63rd birthday in August 2003, he was released from Arthur Kill Correctional Facility on Staten Island. According to online records kept by the state's Department of Corrections and Community Supervision, his parole was successfully completed in November of 2008. That was the last public record of Bateson available as of 2020, where he's living or even if he's alive, it's not known. Miller attempted to contact Bateson for his Esquire article in 2018 at his last known address in the Long Island village of Freeport, but was unsuccessful as the phone had been disconnected. Emails to a different address either bounced or were not answered, and in his podcast interview around the same time, Fredrickson said he had heard Bateson was living somewhere in upstate New York. The only other record is in the Social Security Death Index shows that Paul F. Bateson, with the same birth date and Social Security number issued in Pennsylvania, died September 15th, 2012. And that is the story of Paul Bateson. So, essentially this guy who was in the military, knew how to work metal, became an x-ray specialist, helped the exorcist have its one of its most iconic scenes, became a drunk, possibly killed lots of gay men, but certainly killed just one. I, I don't really... And nobody knows where he yeah. is now. <laughs> yeah. Except ah. the metal part was his father. Oh. But yep. he knew about it. Yep. <laughs> but he wasn't like certified because he did those odd jobs too yeah and nobody really knows where he is now like Rachel said except for if the social security number was actually him huh. which I feel like is probably a good probability that it would be him that would be him <laughs> it certainly should be I wonder if they actually did tell him like if he confessed to these other six murders that he would have a shorter sentence because you know any time that you like hear about serial killers it's like oh like they confess to this one and then 27 other whatever and it's like you know I wonder if people actually get talked into confessing that kind of stuff or is it always real like now I'm kind of like what's going on you know like 
are they just saying because they're going for life anyway that they might as well confess to things that they didn't do oh it's kind of scary like i'm sure you know it's like some kind of closure for the people that you know like the families of people that have been killed or gone missing but it's like yeah is it real i don't know i i I would say it's closure and maybe even like case numbers for police departments like they want to pin it on somebody and yeah even even if there is not a real good backing for it Mm -hmm. i'm more confused as why admitting to more things that would incriminate you would somehow make your sentence less because wouldn't it just mean that like you have more reason to stay there longer now because you admitted to these things well i wonder if there actually was a shorter sentence on the line or if it was just to get them to confess to it i I don't don't know like i can't follow the logic of why admitting to more murders would mean that you would serve less time (laughs) Like, that's more reason to stay in prison, because that's dangerous. <laughs> oh, I just feel like also with, like, serial killers, usually they're, like, they kill their um, targets, like, the same way. So, like, why would he have one that's not the same as the others if he did kill the other six people? Like, why is there one that wasn't in a bag in a river <laughs> you know like, yeah. i don't know not saying that he did or didn't do it but just, i don't know it seems seems like it could fit and that's why they said admit to these mm-hmm. but it's like not exactly the same because like he kind of missed with the one he definitely did and these people <laughs> were like cut up and in bags and premeditated type throwing them away and whatnot, but it seemed more like a cocaine alcohol fueled rage. Right, yeah. So, I don't know. I don't think the FBI would connect them, but maybe police. But I guess he never did really confess to them or yeah. get charged for any of that. But. Yeah. Yep. Crazy. Yep. Crazy, crazy. <laughs> I wonder whatever happened to him now. Like, yeah. Like, what was the rest of his life like after he got out? Like, he was out for a long time. I'm assuming quiet since there isn't really more records. Yeah. He, he ditched his social security number. He's living off the grid in the woods in Montana. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Maybe, yeah. I mean, because after August of 2003, he's kind of been on his own, so... Yeah. And, like, didn't he say that if he was found not guilty, he would essentially pick up roots and go somewhere away from everybody? That's what he did say. Yeah, yep, you're right. So, I might be onto something with this Montana thing. (laughs) Maybe even Canada. There's a lot of space up there. Yeah. Maybe I don't want to find out. (laughs) He's probably dead, but. (laughs) Probably. Otherwise, like, I mean, he would be about 80 now, so. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, they can be just as dangerous at any age. (laughs) If anything, they're your least suspecting of them when they have no hair on their head and they're wrinkly. It's just like that's. You think they're weak, and that's when they strike. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
All right. Well, with that, Rachel, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah, it was exciting. <laughs> and then, John, John, do you want to take us out? Sure. If you like that, please give us five stars and hit subscribe. We would really appreciate that. And if you have any questions for us, you can email us at violinvice at gmail.com. Or you could even leave a comment or something like that on our Facebook page, which is Violin Vice Podcast, as well as on Instagram, which I don't have, but I still think is quite exciting. At also Violin Vice Podcast. Or you can just leave a weird comment or maybe even a strange picture on our Twitter page, which is at Violin Vice with A N D, not an ampersand, because we don't do that. Or you could even support us on patreon.com slash violinvice and see all of our other weird content where Audie scares me in more stories, oh, which you, disturbs me even more. You know, just more black-eyed kids, sleep paralysis, and I, I do have a couple new haunted doll stories that we might put on there. We'll do oh, episodes, no. but that'll be soon. You gave me nightmares. I hope you're proud. Oh, I am. I am. You're a cruel person. But that's all for this episode. Yep. Thanks for joining us. Thank yeah. you, guys. And thank you, Rachel. <laughs> Thanks. All right. We had a guest on our show. We did. <laughs> all right. See you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Violin Vice. Cover art is by Audie Griffith. Music by Annabelle Rivack. If you want to help support the show, please visit patreon.com slash violinvice or give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to. This helps us move up the charts and also helps keep the spooky stories coming. Thank you.